Welcome back to the Thrive Subscribe Podcast. This is Mike Denninger coming to you from the uh, pharmacy bunker at uh, Towncrest Pharmacy in Iowa City, uh, where I sit in a boarded-up pharmacy uh, trying to prevent uh, any issues with uh, looting and rioting uh, taking place in my neighborhood. Uh, it's been a very interesting week. I actually went up on Sunday to pick up my daughter from Minneapolis uh, to bring her home uh, amid the festivities taking place up there, uh, only to find that they had also... Uh, seem to occur now in my own hometown. Uh, but that's just one of the uh, interesting things that has happened this week, uh, probably more pharmacy related, uh, is the fact that I was on a phone call with uh, several pharmacy owners from around the country uh, talking about different uh, ideas to create new revenue streams and uh, ways to support pharmacy practice uh, beyond simply uh, dispensing medications. Basically, uh, you know, amongst the ideas uh, that came up and were talked about was one of pharmacogenomics, uh, which is uh, essentially a, a cash structure business for the most part, uh, but it creates a clinical opportunity for the pharmacy uh, as well as a revenue stream on top of that. Uh, today, Randy is going to speak with his longtime friend, Brad Tice, and uh, discuss pharmacogenomics. And why don't we listen in to see if uh, something like that might be appropriate for your clinical practice going forward. Welcome back to Thrive Subscribe, and I'd like to introduce a special guest that we have today. His name is Brad Tice. Brad and I go way back, and um, back in the days when he was um, actually a student and uh, then a resident and, and then became uh, a clinical pharmacist and worked in a variety of settings developing clinical services within community pharmacy. So I was, it's been exciting for me to watch his career grow over the years um, all the way to his current positions. Um, Brad is founder of RX Genomics. He's also senior vice president of pharmacy practice at Aspen RX Health. And he's also the current APHA president, of which I also sit as a board of trustee uh, with him. So welcome, Brad. Thank you, Randy. Glad to be here. Great. You know, Brad, you, you have always talked about um, community pharmacy in particular, but pharmacist, um, the importance of them providing services that add value um, to the healthcare system and help patients optimize their medications, which is terminology that APHA uses all the time too, the importance of optimization of medications and the role of the pharmacist doing that. You said something one time that really stuck with me, and you said that pharmacists need to own pharmacogenetics. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, certainly. And and so, you know, you know, going back with all the history that we have in, in working to implement uh, clinical practices and get pharmacists paid for those those services, uh, you know, even, you know, back in the time in Iowa and, and uh, at, at Drake and in Chicago, when we would when we would implement services, you know, going back to the 1990s, even uh, we, we were working on areas like diabetes and doing A1C tests, we were doing cholesterol tests and trying to titrate medications to make sure people were achieving the goals of therapy and understanding what those are. And oftentimes, uh, you know, we would get pushback from some people in the physician and other provider community saying, you're practicing medicine or you're doing what we do. And we didn't even get patients saying, my doctor does that. What is unique about pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics, whichever term we want to use, is that uh, th this is specific to medication use. There is the diagnosis is already been made. The medications are being prescribed, but this is about the 
the metabolism of medications and the patient's specific response to those medications. So this is purely the domain and the area for pharmacists and where pharmacists have the expertise. And because of that, we really need to take ownership of it and and implement in clinical practice the right way because we are the ones who understand this better than anybody else. I appreciate that. You know, Brad, one of the things you talked about, and and as you know, with my own career, um, having that pushback, and that pushback is still there. It's not as strong as it used to be, and I think pharmacy has made significant strides to demonstrate their value to the healthcare system. But as we get new things out there, and pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics is a relatively newer field and one that has not been implemented across the board. So can you tell me, um, being the founder of Rx Genomics, what kind of acceptance are you seeing from the other providers out there, especially from the uh, physician community? Yeah, so uh, you know, I really started working on this back in 2012, 2013, seeing that this was the next immunization type of an opportunity for pharmacists uh, that could really go widespread across practice, um, partly because of you know what we just talked about that pharmacists need to own the space. Also, because you know, as you said, pharma. You know, we're really working to help others understand our value. And so uh, the acceptance has been, we knew we were early back in 2012, 2013, right? And so obviously that's why we've not made a huge push until we really believe uh, the time is now. And we've really seen a lot of growth and a lot of acceptance over the last uh, couple of years as more clinical studies have been coming out demonstrating the return on investment and the, the uh, re patient response in clinical practices in certain areas especially. And um, you know, honestly, the timing of our podcast is perfect because uh, there's been a lot of clarity just in the last two weeks as you know, part of the issue was the Food and Drug Administration uh, was really clamping down on the laboratories and how they would generate the reports. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, not wanting the, these red, yellow, green reports going directly to consumers and having them you know, making clinical decisions without talking to a healthcare provider. So, uh, so what they did is they published a table of pharmacogenetic associations and and you know the, the, where they have identified where the data supports therapeutic management and patient safety concerns and pharmacokinetic uh, response. And so having that validation from the FDA just in the last since February 25th is really going to help open up the market and, and provide the acceptance. Uh, we've seen growing acceptance in clinical practice, oftentimes, especially in the mental health area where some of the evidence is the best. Uh, you're starting to see payers, United Healthcare started paying for pharmacogenomic testing um, as of last October because they've seen a $6,000 per member per year savings in uh, those members or patients who have had first line treatment failures with anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications. And so we're really seeing uh, the acceptance um, increase and and really the time is now to, to implement in clinical practice. You know, Brad, commonly, and, and I've been saying um, 
uh, this these figures for uh, a while now with this podcast. But you know, literally, you know, we go back to Lyle Bootman days in 1990s when we say for every dollar we spend on drug therapy, we spend another dollar to correct the problems associated with drug therapy. That's actually increased. <laughs> so we mm -hmm. spent a lot of money over 400 billion dollars in drug therapy, and we're spending about a buck fifty more. Um, per drug um, to correct the problems associated with it. How big of an issue is it as far as inappropriate therapy if you're not doing pharmacogenetics? Well, I think that's a great question, especially with this new um, new list that's been generated by the Food and Drug Administration. I think quickly we're going to get to a point where this is just like checking for drug interactions. If you haven't checked for this, then you know you're going to have to worry about just the opposite that you're at risk for not checking and uh, I, I can't say that we're completely at the point of preemptive testing where we say test for everyone and then have them know that going in um, you know i think we'll get there over the next probably five to ten years um, but but for now i think if a, if a medication is on one of the, uh, the it's on the list that the food and drug administration put out and and they haven't been checked and they have an adverse event, you're really going to have to question, you know, why why wasn't someone tested in, in some cases at least? So what you're really saying and what you're promoting then is that all pharmacists need to really become good students and knowledgeable about pharmacogenetics and understand the application. So how can a pharmacist who interested in learning more about this, what what are the resources and how can they become um, more knowledgeable and develop an expertise in this? Yeah, well, so as I mentioned, we, uh, we, when we first, you know, wanted to bring this to pharmacists, we wanted to follow the immunization model and how successful that had been. And the first step in that was creating a, a training program to train pharmacists uh, on pharmacogenomics and and the implementation of, of the clinical practice. And so we you know, set out by creating a 16-hour fully online training program for pharmacists to um, you know, get up to speed, just like we did with immunizations and vaccinations. And then uh, you know, you know, other, other people have created additional programs, so there are different programs and, and opportunities out there to get trained, but I do agree uh, that every pharmacist needs to to be up to speed in this area. You know, ACPE, uh, the Accreditation Body for Pharmacy Education, put standards in for education of all pharmacy schools about, I think it was three years ago. I might be off on that a little bit, but it was a few years ago. And uh, the NIH has uh, a community where they, um, where you know, they have recommendations on what needs to be taught and our course has aligned to those. So, uh, but there are, are other courses out there. And uh, I forgot to mention one thing on the, what the FDA published around its list is they didn't just create a list that's static. They established a collaborative community so that healthcare professionals and researchers involved can update the information. They say that list is not all-inclusive and they're going to work to build um, the, the body of, of work around this. And, and that is, was so important because uh, one of the challenges was that, uh, you know, 
a lot of these drugs have already been on the market. And so while many drugs have actually labeling on their drugs, on their, excuse me, on their package insert around uh, recommendations of, of uh, genetic testing or pharmacogenomic response, a lot of drugs hadn't been updated and that was, uh, was part of the problem. And, and now this is gonna both cr provide clarity and provide a path forward as the new evidence evolves and, and matures. I think that's exciting to know that not only do we have our education organizations such as ACPE really putting standards together what they expect colleges of pharmacy to be doing, um, but also having these national organizations that really are saying this is an important component of patient care and we need to have some standards associated with that and we need to have providers who are um, really, you know, understanding this this science, um, if you will. You know, I, I um, have kind of dabbled in pharmacogenetics um, over the years. And what worried me was how a company I might be associated with initially, then all of a sudden just left the marketplace. Is is the marketplace stabilizing? And, and what happened to some of these other companies that came in and then left the, the uh, industry? Yeah, it has been a, a little bit of a roller coaster ride trying to, to work through that. Uh, there's been a couple of things that have happened. One uh, has been most of these companies have been labs that have been pushing the tests on practitioners, uh, partially because, you know, going back um, several years to 2012 to 2016-ish timeframe, uh, the labs could make a lot of money billing Medicare, you know, upwards of $3,500 or $5,000 per test to uh, through Medicare for for patients, and Medicare actually spent upwards of 150 million dollars. I think it was in 2014 on uh, on pharmacogenomic testing through physicians, and the physicians would get these 20, 30, 40 page reports and not know what to do with them. They would uh, just sit in the prescribers' offices. We we found one office that had over 1,500 of these reports sitting in their office because they'd ordered the reports or the tests, uh, but didn't know what to, how to apply the information. And then at the same time, they didn't have a way to integrate it into their practice. And so, you know, no physician has time to go uh, look up a 50 page report and weed through the information when a patient comes back in. And so part of the reason it didn't get implemented was because there was no good way to integrate it into practice. Uh, and so then what happened was after the, uh, excuse me, Medicare said, well, we can't tell what value we're getting from this. And so they stopped paying on the test and that caused some of the labs to shut down because they couldn't afford to stay in business. And then third, uh, there was a lot of the ambiguity from the FDA. The FDA has really uh, um, shunned uh, direct to consumer where a lab would send the test directly to uh, a person when they ordered it and send the results to them for them to make a, a determination. So any any hint of direct to consumer, uh, the FDA sent some of those labs cease and desist letters. Um, and then of course, you maybe the most widespread known because of their marketing is 23andMe that had some tests out and they had actually gone to the extent of um, uh, submitting a 510k for approval from the FDA, but then they never followed up um, for, I think it was several years. Uh, and then finally, the FDA said, you got to stop until you can prove. And that some of their 
some of their 510k was around predicting disease from genetic tests. And so uh, some of this has had to evolve, uh, but now we're really at a point, uh, I think with the FDA coming out with the path, uh, with the evidence in the ROI building, uh, and that we are really at a place where this is mature to be able to be implemented. You know, Brad, yeah, I'm always, I'll tell the listeners that um, our pharmacies are, are working with RX Genomics and Part of the attraction, as I said, I've dabbled in this um, over many years and and then have seen companies that have come and gone, which made me leery, you know, of the system. But what I appreciated about you was really Rx Genomics was uh, founded with the understanding, the basis that it's the pharmacist who's taking the lead on this because you have mentioned how pharmacists have the education, the knowledge uh, to really make this thing work. And I really appreciate how you're saying you're following, you know, like the immunization model that we are trying to utilize the expertise of the pharmacist, but make sure they have the expertise, they have the knowledge. So giving them a good, thorough um, educational program to help them with that, but then give them kind of a step-by-step process for how do you actually implement this in practice. And obviously, you know, we're still in the early stages of learning how to do this effectively, but I do appreciate, you know, that that's the, the premise and the foundation of your company. And, and that's the reason why we decided to uh, start working with your company. And with that being said, you know, the challenge out there is still uh, for pharmacists, and I'll speak about community pharmacy, is it's getting tough out there to survive because the reimbursement on product is just getting less and less. And DAR fees are, you know, just exploding out there on us. And, and so pharmacists need to look for different ways of, of providing uh, new services and getting paid for those services. You touched upon that there are payers out there who are willing to pay. Tell me about some of the payment strategies that do exist right now for um, pharmacists who want to start practicing pharmacogenetics. Yeah, just touching on a couple of things there. You know, RX Genomics, we chose not to be a lab, but we also know that pharmacies are not used to working directly with labs. And so we connect pharmacies to the labs and through our system of ordering and receiving the results can make that seamless to a pharmacist. So even if one lab goes away, we can switch to another lab and they would never, you know, have a hiccup in their delivery. Now, secondly, you know, through MTM, medication therapy management, we've established this concept of a medication action plan and, and really to insert the pharmacist in that, you know, our goal has been to get pharmacists establish pharmacists as the experts and get them paid for the delivery of the service. And so what we do in the value add is to really put that pharmacist between the lab and the physician or provider so that, uh, or prescriber, so that they can put the results into a one to two page medication action plan that the physicians can understand what action they need to take. And we can store those patients' results and check against those in the future. Ideally, when we're integrated, which we've established the capabilities with some, that it can come across simply like a drug interaction check, uh, checking against their genetic profile. So when you look at payment, that also, <coughs> excuse me, that also is evolving. Where, uh, you know, I've, I mentioned United Healthcare is paying. Uh, there are some health systems that are per- paying for services for their members. Uh, there's a, some PBMs that are, are now doing it, but the key is that many of these, when they say they're paying for the test, that's what they're paying for. They pay for the, just like they pay for a cholesterol test or an A1C test, 
They're paying for the pharmacogenomic test to be done. What we really have to establish as pharmacists is the payment for the consultation, because that's where we're inserting our value. And, and not only the consultation one time, and the consultation on an ongoing basis, because you know, with other types of lab tests, what changes are, you know, are the you know, physio physiological parameters of the patient, their cholesterol, their blood pressure, uh, but their their DNA doesn't change. And, and uh, so the only thing that changes is medications that they're taking. And so when the pharmacist has to do that review in the future, then they need to be compensated for that review on an ongoing basis. So uh, we're seeing some third-party payment come in, and we what we believe is that uh, there are opportunities to pay, get paid for those consultations in some um, in some third-party payers, and we can certainly facilitate that in, in some cases. Uh, we're actually promoting more of a, a direct approach, um, where we are doing direct contracting with employers and with other types of groups and establishing that payment mechanism within that. And that's, I think, the cleanest and that puts the uh, the payment where the risk is and where it hits home the most because it's out of the pocket of that, that employer wellness program or benefit. And then I think for, for pharmacists, it's really a unique opportunity. You know, we've been working to establish and get paid for our services, our clinical cognitive services. Um, and when we've thought about, uh, you know, typical medication therapy management and talking to patients about reviewing their medications for them, uh, oftentimes they think, well, don't you already do that? And aren't I already paying for that? And, and they don't understand the payment models from their insurance company and how those fees have really uh, been commoditized around the drug product. Uh, but what's what was also attractive and interesting about pharmacogenomics is it's new and different. It, it meets the new and different criteria of what bringing a new product needs to be to come to market. And some people, they understand that no other healthcare professional is talking to them about their how their genetics and DNA impacts their response to medication. They can see that the pharmacist is the right healthcare professional to be having that conversation with. And they also know that, <clears throat> that uh, you know, none of their health, other healthcare professionals have been talking to them about this while they've seen companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com who have kind of broken down some of the, the barriers around uh, around genetic testing so they understand it's just a buckle cheek swab it's not a fingerprint or blood involved it's not painful so uh, you know it can fit easily into the workflow just like a vaccination into a pharmacy uh, and so we think it's an ideal opportunity for pharmacists to establish either a fee-for-service cash model or even a concierge model with patients to get paid, where they get they charge for the initial test and consultation, and then ongoing consultations, or they establish a monthly fee uh, as a part of a membership program that patients can understand and, and they can understand why they need this. Because people want to know this information. I mean, when you start to when they start to realize, oh, I could have a different response based upon my genetic profile. Uh, I'd want to know I'm on the right medications and that they're working well specifically for me. Uh, and so they're very intrigued by that. It gives a pharmacist a new opportunity to change the model that we've been working in. And, and that's another uh, 
reason why pharmacists really need to implement this now. I appreciate that, Brad. And and a question that comes up commonly is how secure is the data? Because um, obviously pharmacists don't want to have liability with those issues. So I know that talking to you and, and your company, there's a lot of things you have to do to ensure security. Can you address some of that? Oh, most definitely. I mean, yeah, we, we do store, we don't, we do not store the um, uh, sample. So that gets, you know, discarded and, and appropriately. Uh, we only store the results. And an, an important um, question to have the answer to is, is around data security and what's being stored where. And it's important for patients to understand that this test is only on the medication pathways, and it's not going to have anything tested or stored around rare diseases or other diseases or any other, not their ancestry or anything like that. We're just focused on what we need it for, for clinical practice. So that's the first um, data security uh, question to be able to answer. Secondly, you know, we, we have to have our data stored and protected at the highest levels possible. And we've been through the security audits and checks with some of the companies that we do business with to ensure that. Um, I won't get into all the different technical details of what that looks like, um, but you know, we are contracting directly with very, very large employers. And so they put us under the scrutiny uh, to be able to make sure that we have the data of their people and their top leadership and uh, especially um, protected. And some of these companies are, you know, some of the top names in the IT industry that you could think of. And so to, to have their data, obviously they're going to put us under the, the highest scrutiny as well. So we do take that very seriously and have the top level controls on the data as it's being stored. And I should say, not just stored, because as you get into IT, you understand it's not just being uh, encrypted and, and and protected when it's at rest, also when it's being transmitted at the same time. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate that, because I know that's uh, a concern and a question that, um, you know, many pharmacists will have about that. So I think that, you know, puts our, our mind at ease that there are um, these companies that are ensuring that you have good security measures within your own um, practice and, and your own company. So, Brad, as we end this uh, podcast today, I first want to tell you, you know, this has been uh, very uh, interesting and, and I think it's good information and information for pharmacists that they should really start looking at pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics and, and start thinking about how they can apply this within their own practice. Do you have any, um, any parting comments you'd like to make as far as, um, you know, where you see the future of uh, pharmacy practice and and uh, the role of the of the pharmacist in medication optimization. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked because there is one other one other thought I wanted to uh, get across this is, which is that you know you you touched on it earlier, Randy, when you talked about pharmacist is pharmacists establishing our value to patients. Um, pharmacogenomics gives you that opportunity to establish your value. It is amazing to hear the patient's responses to these results and how it impacts their lives. I mean, you really do get into clinical uh, life-saving situations that you have improved patients' lives from doing this test doing and, and applying it to their lives. There was one person I was just talking to this weekend. They were literally to the point of their, their spouse. They were about to get divorced they were 
uh, having many marital problems and, and other issues going on. Um, and I, I think there was actually some suicidal issues as well. And they did a genetic test and they discovered that she was not responding to her medications and they were able to get her on the right medications. And now they're married, they're expecting, or I think they're trying to have a, a child. Um, they have a healthy marriage. And, you know, that's just one example. We hear, as we do some of these tests, we hear different you know, stories of the value that people are seeing in this from, um, and then from not doing it. We did one test on a, um, doing a pilot with a potential client and they came back and said, if we would have had this information two weeks ago, we could have kept this person out of the intensive care unit. And it's just responses like that and stories like that over and over about the clinical application and the clinical value that when you start delivering this as a pharmacist, you demonstrate that to your patients and to the other healthcare professionals you're working with. And, and that is where we really need to head in practice. And, and it, we, we've got to establish our value in a way that we know is there, Oftentimes, because people just think of medications now as taking a pill and and everything will do the that'll do the work and do its job. Uh, you talked about the the high cost of inappropriate use of medications. We can really make an impact through this, and uh, that's why pharmacists need to implement it. Well, I appreciate that, and and I would say that um, those clinical examples are probably a good way for us to end on because I think that really demonstrates the the value at the patient level and and you know the the quote that babo always used to say if it's right for the patient it's right for the profession so obviously this is the right move for our profession because the impact we can have on patients lives so brad thank you very much for your time today this has been very informative and very helpful and i appreciate um, all your efforts and i appreciate the work that you do at the apha level and i know that uh, you do a lot of travel because of the volunteer work that you do and and i just appreciate your dedication to the profession so thank you very much likewise thank you randy thank you for uh, the opportunity the thrive subscribe podcast is brought to you by thrive pharmacy transformations visit us online at tptransformations.com where you can join our free community to inspire you challenge you and transform your pharmacy practice